occasionally eras in history get their own names. In fact, maybe that's what defines an era is that we can give something a name so that it describes something. Reconstruction, the Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, and now we have the COVID years. Recently, on HBO's hit The Last of Us, a character described how the collapse of society occurred over a weekend. Sounds far-fetched, except for the fact that it had echoes in real life. On Thursday, March 20th, the year 2020, the National Basketball Association announced suspension of the rest of its season. By Monday, the first of the shelter-in-place orders were issued by governors. We had entered the COVID era. One of the many unfortunate results of the pandemic is the exacerbation of inequality. How does increased inequality threaten democratic governance? What steps might be taken to address that increase in inequality as, pande- as the pandemic or as pandemics continue? Joining us for these topics is Dr. Stephen Bezruchka, faculty member of the Department of Global Health, the Department of Health Sciences at University of Washington, author of the recently released Inequality Kills Us All. It's not an optimistic title. Hopefully there's some optimism in the conversation. COVID-19's health lessons for the world. Professor Bezruchka, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Welcome to Democracy Nerd. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Jefferson, for having me. Yes, you uh, pronounced my name correctly. Thank you. Before we delve into the book, I want to hear your story a little bit. This is not your first book. Your previous books were, I think, backpacking guides in Nepal. This seems a bit different from that. Tell us the story. So I uh, was a mathematics graduate student at Harvard in the late 60s, and I decided I wanted to do something more useful, uh, like provide uh, medical care. And from the time I decided to apply to medical school, I had a gap year, what people call a gap year now. So uh, what to do with that year? Uh, well, I'd spent a lot of time in the mountains and here in the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere. And so I decided to go to Nepal to get close to the highest mountains in the world. So I spent a year walking the hills and valleys in the country and wrote a guidebook to that process. I called it Trekking in Nepal. And it was published in 1972, uh, and I kept on revising it. The last edition came out in uh, 2011, and it's the last one. I, I'm far too lame to try to revise it again. But what that did was give me an, an insight into a country described as one of the poorest countries in the world, um, but it it was a, a very welcoming country that is had few miles of roads and uh, and anybody's home was a B and B. In other words, uh, as you traveled throughout the country, there were no tourist facilities, so you stayed in people's homes, uh, saw what they ate, uh, shared their meals, and traveled from village to village and sometimes crossing high passes and uh, and other adventurous things. Based on that, I had applied to medical school uh, deciding I wanted to do mathematical modeling of cancer research of, of cancer processes. But after that year spent in Nepal, 
I decided it was much more relevant to try and provide healthcare services in very disadvantaged situations. So when I went to medical school, that became my goal, how to uh, learn uh, skills that would be useful. And I was successful in doing that. I went to Stanford Medical School in the early 70s, and, uh, and they were quite comfortable with letting students design uh, their own learning issues. So uh, after that, in 1974, I went back to Nepal to set up a community health project a week's walk from the road. So imagine, here you are, uh, a week's walk to get to where you're going to live and work. And I tried to, uh, what I tried to do is train local people locally in skills that would be appropriate for them to um, take care of the health problems of people living there. And this was a high valley about uh, uh, 9,300 feet. And, uh, uh, and that was, that was perhaps one of the most uh, satisfying experiences of, of my life. I, uh, I then came back into the United States. I worked as an emergency doctor, um, but my habit for Nepal, I had to, uh, well, I had to go back and keep updating the trekking book. And uh, in the 1980s, using my experiences in uh, in the 70s, I set up a remote district hospital as a teaching hospital for Nepali doctors and supervised them. So I got a chance uh, in the 70s to gain experience using uh, in an unresourced setting, uh, teaching others, and then I got to uh, do that uh, for Nepali doctors, people who'd graduated from medical school and were working in remote areas. And I continued to do that, uh, working with Nepali doctors uh, to try and improve services in remote district hospitals. Anyway, along the way, and, and, and it's, I, I came to see that health status in the United States was uh, not what I expected. Here we are uh, with a very sophisticated healthcare medical care system, and yet we're not that healthy if the standard is comparing how long we live to people in other countries. So when I went to, well, uh, when I went to medical school in 1970, some 17 countries, uh, people in some 17 countries had longer lives than we do. This really puzzled me. I thought the United States should be one of the healthiest countries in the world. I then uh, <laughs> became obsessed with trying to understand this. So in 1992, I went back to public health school to gain an understanding of public health uh, and try and answer my question. And um, so I came away with the recognition that I already knew medical care didn't do much, uh, that social and political factors really mattered most. And so by 1995 or so, uh, I became obsessed with trying to make American health status better known to people here and to try and do something about it. That's a rather long story I could even <laughs> lengthen, but that's enough.
Well, let's use that as the prologue to the spark that gets you to say, you know what, not only do we need to write about the health system, understand it, but let's look at the connection and more deeply the connection between inequality and COVID and pandemics. Was there a given moment, either in the mountains of Nepal or the halls of a reunion at Harvard or in class at the University of Washington that said, no, this is this is the thing I got to write and I'm the one who's got to write it? <laughs> so uh, about 1994, 1993 or four, I came across studies linking income inequality to mortality rates in countries. And, uh, you know, the first studies appeared in 1979. And uh, by the mid 90s, there were a number of studies. And I wanted to see, you know, should I believe these? I mean, there's so much uh, information out there. Is this something that is important? It, it felt um, it felt right to me because uh, I saw uh, class divides. I grew up in a working class neighborhood. I then um, raised my class or caste status by going to prestigious schools. And uh, it was easy to look down upon people who didn't who didn't have these qualifications. So I then uh, got in touch with uh, some of the important researchers in this, and I spent much of the latter half of the 1990s doing this to convince myself that uh, inequality was bad for health. And uh, I came up with my first book proposal in 1996, so it's been a, a long time in the oven. But uh, I think it's important to uh, yeah, 1996. That is not all. There are ovens that don't last, you know, uh, <laughs> 27 years. So it's uh, it's it's good that the ideas lasted longer than maybe a bad oven. Yes, yes. Richard Wilkinson, I know, did his uh, did his TED talk on the impact of uh, wealth inequality, income inequality on nations, and I suspect you're drawing from the same research. Uh, and uh, what struck you the most? I mean, I know that the his basic thesis is once you reach a certain level of wealth in a nation, getting wealthier as a nation doesn't seem to have particular impacts, particularly improvements on on public health or really anything else, you, any other indicator of human health and happiness. But inequality certainly does. There's a, it's a big driver. What struck you most about that or what story or example or even small piece of data helps illustrate that, either that you enjoy talking about in class or that you use in your work? So Richard Wilkinson has been a major influence on my thinking. Uh, I, I first, so I, I wrote him after I saw his uh, 1992 British Medical Journal study, and we corresponded. And then he came to uh, Boston to meet with other researchers. And so I spent a month with him um, sort of exploring uh, the the Northeast and coming to understand his uh, his thoughts. Um, I think that's really important. You and there are a lot of ideas out there and you have to sort of decide 
which ones really are meaningful to address the questions that you're asking. Uh, Thomas Pynchon wrote in Gravity's Rainbow, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about the answers. So coming up with the right question to ask, I think is critically important. So, you know, what does inequality do for health? Well, it makes us make comparisons with others. And, uh, and in a high income inequality society, those environments are very stressful. And so we are exposed to the uh, stresses that are produced when there's a big income or, or wealth gap. And that produces stress responses that, uh, you know, stress is there to get you out of trouble. But when you're worried about uh, uh, all sorts of uh, stresses that aren't really immediately lethal, uh, you come up with all the health problems that Americans have. I, I sort of uh, quipped that stress is the 21st century tobacco. Americans don't smoke much anymore. It's only the poor that smoke. But stress levels in this country are among some of the highest in the world. I present data to my students that, well, I, I coined the term health Olympics. We, we to be uh, a metaphor for competition among countries. That is, uh, we compete in Olympic events, uh, uh, countries compete, and we typically win the most medals, the most gold medals, except sometimes in the Winter Olympics, we're second or third. If health were an Olympic event and the race was how long you lived, we wouldn't be there for the final day's race. We would have been disqualified in the trials. So um, we can have stress Olympics and, and rank countries by levels of stress. And we're somewhere in the top five or six of, of those countries. So, so we're we, in the unhealth Olympics. We, we, we do get to, we do pass the qualifiers. <laughs> we do maybe even get to take the stage uh, and, and, and hold up a medal when it comes to the stress Olympics. Yes. So unhealth Olympics, I uh, thank you for that, for planting that idea. Uh, what does it mean to be healthy? Well, uh, for most of us, it's sort of how you feel. You get up in the morning and and do you feel uh, ready to face the day? Um, and then you're told all sorts of things to do to be healthy. Eat this, uh, don't drink that, uh, don't smoke, wear a condom. And when you put those things together and look at personal behaviors, as I did somewhere about uh, 20 some odd years ago, uh, you know, as an emergency doctor, I used to uh, uh, just rail against my smoking patients who ended up in the ER with all sorts of problems that I had to try and uh, fix to either get them admitted or, uh, or street them. And so I thought smoking was about the most horrible thing you could do. Um, and then I discovered the longest lived country had three times as many men smoking as the United States. I couldn't, I couldn't, that didn't compute. Didn't make any sense. Made no sense. So anytime you're faced with something that doesn't make sense, that's an opportunity to learn, uh, you know, 
Somebody said that trying to change your mind is, is one of the best ways of discovering whether you still have one. So how could I deal with uh, United States having so f relatively few smokers and yet being so unhealthy? So uh, stress is the stresses replace smoking as the 21st century tobacco, so to speak. I want to use the tobacco, you know, analogy, metaphor, what have you, as a way of thinking about stress. So with tobacco, we see it, we smell it. There's a specific habit that we can be criticized for that we can try to address in our own lives. There are products that can be sold to help us quit. We can chew certain gums. There's also a villain. There's somebody that we can have congressional hearings around and explain that they were uh, selling people something they knew caused cancer when uh, well after they knew that it caused cancer and lying about it there are regulations that can help that are pretty specific don't smoke in the airport don't smoke in the airplane don't smoke in the restaurant uh, increase the level of uh, of taxes on smoking sue tobacco companies and make them pay some price for having killed so many people from cancer uh, the fact that the country you mentioned had people living a long time wasn't because they smoked longer, it was in spite of it. So there's things that we can do with that. With stress, it's trickier. It's harder to see. You can't really smell it to my degree. I mean, maybe a dog can. The uh, uh, There are many, many habits, right, rather than one specific one. The villain, well, also through multivalent villains or nobody, uh, the, not, not clear the regulations, not clear, no stress allowed in the airplane. I'm telling you, I get stress every time I get on an airplane. So how do you think, and maybe I'm jumping ahead too far, but not even before, even before prescription, how do you even get people feeling like stress isn't just a soft, weak thing to talk about? That in fact, it's something real and tangible that we should care about rather than just, ah, you're just, just whining, complaining liberal. So you were talking about stress getting on an airplane. So there's a phenomenon called air rage, namely uh, belligerent behavior, intoxication, trying to smoke in the lavatory, uh, sexual assault, not complying with the, uh, with the flight attendants or the pilots. And that's been studied. And, uh, and studies that first appeared around, uh, well, seven or eight years ago showing that air rage was greater in an airplane that had a first class cabin and a coach cabin and if you entered through the first class cabin the people in first class even showed more air rage compared to entering behind the first class cabin uh, so the uh, the first class passengers didn't have to see these plebeians moving by, which wigged them out. So uh, that's air rage. And, you know, we live in a very class conscious society. I mean, we're, we're, we're all middle class, so that's not true. But of course, uh, we have highest rates of poverty of all rich countries, suggesting that uh, uh, we're, we're not a, a middle-class society. Anyway, so what's happened to air rage uh, uh, recently? Well, with COVID, the behaviors have really increased. COVID has caused a lot more air rage in the planes. It's caused road rage. I mean, you can see how we respond to seeing 
distinctions in society by class, or as Isabel Wilkerson writes, caste. We we actually caste is something that is fixed and immutable. Uh, I you know I spent a lot of time in Nepal, which is very, which is a caste society, and people know their place in their caste, and they can't do anything to get out of it. And the rest of the people accommodate them or don't in various ways. Um, this caste consciousness is actually there in the United States. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it's really more important, uh, she writes, uh, uh, than race or class. However, we don't talk about that. We talk about race in this country. It's uncomfortable to talk about class because the, one of the ways that we have found ourselves to be special. Well, uh, okay. It is the Super Bowl. I host a Super Bowl party, not because I celebrate concussions, but because I try to forget them when the Super Bowl comes around. And if you look at the history of football, one of the reasons that tackle football, one of the reasons it's called the wrong thing, right? Because like football, you don't use your feet very much in American football. And we call the thing you do use your feet a bunch. We call that soccer. <laughs> and when you look at the, why tackle football became American football, people will analyze and say, well, one of the big reasons is it made us different than Britain. It, like we, our national sport was different than national sport because screw them. We beat them in a revolution. We're going to have a different sport than them. Okay. Uh, similarly, I think one of the sources of national pride from our inception was this idea that we were not a caste society that you could, that you could pull yourself up by whatever clothing type you chose to do whatever you might do. And that since probably a road, you know, you probably have a better timeline to it. I'd put the timeline right around 1980. We have been marching or dropping or drifting, uh, if not inexorably, at least in a direction towards something that I think violates our understanding or our pride, our mythology, uh, if if not our understanding of what our country is or what our country should be. What are your favorite ways of illustrating, or least favorite, ways of illustrating that the idea of us as less of a class-based or less of a caste society than other places is hogwash, or why that matters so much other than air rage? <laughs> so where to go with that? Um, wherever you want. It's it's barely a question. <laughs> or it's seven, so you can take it wherever you want. So what should a, a, a country's goal be? What kind of society should it aim to be? Or should it just uh, keep the status quo? Well, uh, in the I would offer that uh, for people in a country, um, do they want to be do they want to be healthy or not? Suppose you lived in a country where your chances of having uh, a long, healthy life were low. Suppose you and and suppose that could be changed in the country in which you live. Would you want to change it or not? So countries have goals. Well, I, I remember in the 1950s uh, uh, when I came of age, uh, Russia launched the satellite into space in 1957. It beamed a, single, a signal down to Earth, and we were caught totally unawares. 
So we were jolted into saying, my God, somebody's, it's like the Chinese balloon, but this was a satellite. And, uh, and so we said, this shouldn't be, we're going to set a goal to land a human on the moon by the end of the next decade. And so guess what? We accomplished that. Societies have goals at any point uh, in their lives or trajectories. So we can ask, so in the 60s, the goal was to land a human on the moon. Uh, the goal in the, it changed, the goal in the 70s changed to something that really operationalized in the 80s, which was, let's make the rich as have as much money as possible. And that will be best for us because something will trickle down and that and, and we'll be happy with uh, whatever droppings the rich released. That was the neoliberal transformation of society that began. Why did it begin? Well, it began around the mid 1970s. And Business Week um, had a report in October 1974 that said it will be a hard pill for Americans to swallow the idea of doing with less so big business can have more. Nothing in modern economic history compares in difficulty with the cell job that must now be done to make Americans accept the new reality. Why did that happen? Well, the richest well, the richest one uh, percent's wealth share had plummeted. They only had a quarter of all the wealth down from a half before. So, of, of course, they put in place policies to regain their wealth. And that was the neoliberal transformation. Ronald Reagan uh, heralded it very well with trickle down economics. And it's been uh, amazingly successful ever since, especially with COVID profiteering. Here we have uh, the most, the greatest inequality in American history. And, uh, and that's thanks to the pandemic. So whatever, uh, whatever Business Week was writing about, uh, namely the, the, the incredible selling job to make us accept the new reality has been widely, wildly successful. Yes, there's a, a, a little bit of talk. The State of the Union made some uh, push to maybe tax the rich a little bit, but uh, they won't allow that. So the uh, I'll start with my quibble. It is my regular quibble. I should almost have a button on my on my thing. <laughs> so anytime the word neoliberalist said, I quibble. And, and the reason is I just don't like the word. And the reason I don't like it is because it whacks the word liberal, which is not because I, I quibble with its contemporary definition, but because I don't think it's as useful a word as most people, as the people who use it seem to think, because it whacks the word liberal, which is confusing and maybe even counterproductive. I, I am still looking for a better phrase. Market fundamentalism is, it gets a little closer to how I, I'm trying to figure out how to talk about it. That is mostly beside the point. And I really appreciate what you had to say. I And I, and I heard you say a couple other things that I wanted to pile on to. So one, uh, if you put yourself behind a Rawlsian veil of ignorance, you're going to say, okay, what, what kind of society do we want to be? You'd say, if you're picking A, B, C, D, or however many, like, well, I want to go to the one where I'd have a chance of living longer and being healthier. And right now you wouldn't pick the one that's winning the unhealth Olympics. You'd pick the one that was like at least making the finals of the health Olympics. And we're, we're not doing that. And if you were going to define a moonshot as candidate for president, 
uh, or heck, even as a candidate for city council, your moonshot might be, well, what if we what if we made it to the health Olympics? It reminds me a little bit of the challenges, and you, you talked about the 1960s, of the challenges when, let's say, when Silent Spring was published around the, about the natural environment. The time Silent Spring was published, most of the threats to the environment were point source threats, right? They were, they were, you find effluent, cap effluent, make a meaningful impact on the environment, right? I still think in our, in our parlance, in our political habits, in our organization building, in our propaganda efforts, we understand a particular villain vastly better. We understand effluent that must be capped rather than challenges that are happening because what each and every one of us are doing that either have to happen by lots and lots and lots and lots of micro habits or are assisted by some collective contracting that we do. Hey, let's all make a deal. How about how about each of us could pollute a little bit less? Or if we pollute more, we pay a little more. Or how about each of us make a rule that we're not going to smoke on airports, right? Because I know that if we all smoke in airports, we're all screwed. I can make my choice, but if all of us make the same choice, we're screwing a bunch of other people, including ourselves. How do you go about, and I like the Health Olympics thing, how do you go about trying to communicate the idea? I guess maybe it's writing a book that we have to figure out, because what occurs to me is that we need a new way of setting goals together. We need a new way of telling stories. We need a new way of understanding problem solving that goes beyond sort of hero narratives, beyond villain narratives, and beyond, you know, just like identify specific problem, solve specific problem, and move on because we got problems that are sort of complicated. How do you think that through, or how do you try to communicate it to others so that they'll think it through? So... I love the John Rawls uh, veil of ignorance. I think that's a, a very important concept, namely, how would you design society if you didn't know how where you were going to end up? Um, I, I would offer that most people in the United States would rather live a longer, healthier life than a shorter, sicker one. <laughs> what they don't know is that that choice is not available to them. We we kind of confuse the situation by the, the words we use. We conflate health and health care. We pay for health, access health, get health, insure health. That's not what we're doing. We're paying for health care, insuring health care, accessing health care. So most care. Americans think it's health care that produces health. The, the terms mean the same. So first you have to ask people, do you want health or health care? Forget that we don't have uh, universal health care and, you know, a lot of people would love to have access to uh, quality health care services. Um, but be that aside, health care is a minor player in producing health. That's a very tough thing to try and challenge. So I would more likely say, uh, what are your chances of living a long, healthy life? by being in the United States. They're not very good. I have my students, for example, compare a 15-year-old uh, girl being alive at age 60 using United States and Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is not exactly a, a rich, uh, uh, advanced country. The 15-year-old Sri Lankan girl has a better chance of being alive at age 60 than the 15-year-old American girl. Same is true in Tunisia, Peru. In many other countries, 
it is clear you're more likely to not die during uh, during adulthood. We have very high adult mortality rates. It's worse for the poor. It's worse for African Americans. It's the worst for American Indians. But even rich whites, you know, one way to look at that, uh, the longest lived person at any one time is not in the United States. They typically hail from the longest lived country, Japan, uh, or occasionally in other uh, long lived countries. So trying to communicate that our health as individuals in the uh, world's richest, most powerful country that spends half the world's health care bill is not very good is a challenge. And how do you do that? Well, um, if people have traveled to other countries, then you can get them to make comparisons about lifestyles there and whether they impact health. If they have uh, uh, looked at data, I once asked, I once asked, uh, I, was, I was in a grade eight class of privileged students talking about these ideas and they were clearly confused. So I stopped and I said, how do you come to know something is true? There was silence. You know how uncomfortable silence is. I kept with the silence. Finally, a boy raised his hand and he said, if our parents tell us when we're very young, if our teachers and classmates reinforce it, and if we've experienced it, then we know it to be true. That is a, such a profound uh, statement of epistemology. You got to hear it when you're young from people you respect. It's got to be reinforced by others that you trust, and it, you have to experience it. Now, it's very hard to experience uh, population health data, mortality data, you know, unless you work in a morgue or uh, compile mortality data uh, in Olympia or, you know, in, in the state capital and then send it to uh, the National Center for Health Statistics. Unless you deal with those data, it's going to be very hard to experience the what we're talking about so at some point you've got to trust others doing it for you so how do you come to trust others well <laughs> trust studies on trust have shown that the more inequality in society the less trust in one another and the less trust in government so we've somehow through this process of uh uh, market uh, fundamentalism or neoliberalism created vast inequality that has made us much less trusting of each other and of the government. And so it, we live in a society with a highly toxic, odorless, colorless, invisible gas, the gas of inequality that kills us from all the usual diseases we die of, and we're totally unaware of it. So I too, as, as were you, but I, I've not done nearly enough with it, but uh, I too was impacted by Rich Wilkinson's work and the, and I, and I remember watching his Ted talk and thinking, everybody's got to see this. And it only had, you know, it has like a few million views. Oh. To me, it should have a hundred million. 
Yeah. Right. And and I recognize that the people with the most financial capacity to spread messages are probably don't prioritize his message as much as they might prioritize another one. Because that basic idea, right? If you want to have impact on, for instance, we have done conversations here about social media, the impact that social media is having on trust, where you have fewer gatekeepers, where you have more people with wacky ideas. And in fact, where there can be an inverse relationship between uh, truth and virality, right? That, because if you say something that's really shocking, right? Say something that that is way different than what anybody else is saying, it will attract more attention and energy than something that is not shocking. And things that everybody knows, which for instance might be true, that you heard when you were young, that was reinforced by authority and by peers, that maybe you experienced, that kind of stuff is boring, doesn't get retweets, doesn't get likes. But something that is different, maybe you never heard it, or it was never really reinforced, or you haven't experienced it, or it relates to one of those things, but violates something else. Well, that can get extra virality. That can get more likes, more retweets. So we then tell social media is a thing. But maybe what you just said is that it ain't just social media that's impacting the less trust. It is the fact that we have more inequality than we had in 1979 and 1983 and 19, anytime since, since probably, when do you think, I usually use my, my shorthand sort of the gilded age. And I don't know if there's a perfect equality or inequality curve. Somebody's got one better than I do in my head. The way I basically think about it is that real bad, you know, 110 years ago, right. Give or take, you know, post-Civil War to, to maybe World War II, the dip was probably somewhere in the midpoint between those two eras. And then World War II to about 1980, that's when we have the strongest middle class. And then it's been sliding. It's been sliding since. Do you have a better quick way or as long as you want sort of describing sort of the curvature of inequality and that reinforces then that idea? Well, maybe that's why it's not just change in communications technology. It's that we're more stressed out. We don't trust each other as much because we don't feel the world is very fair. So let's go back uh, a few hundred thousand years. Good. That's a good place to start. <laughs> um, for most of human existence, uh, 95, 99%, we lived as hunter-gatherer, forager, hunter societies. And what do we know about that period? Well, um, we don't have record keeping from way back then, uh, but we do have um, skeletal, we have skeletons from back then. And skeletons are either uh, have bones, the bones may be fossilized, you can measure the bones. If you measure the bones, take the femur, the thigh bone, uh, it's pretty easy to measure. And then you date various measurements uh, using carbon dating or whatever, uh, and you find that bones started to get shorter. And they started to get shorter about 10,000 years ago, when we made the transition from foraging and hunting to agriculture. That was a major transition, and all evidence points to health declining with the progress, if you want to call it, of agriculture, because inequality increased. From all we know about hunter-gatherer societies, they had vigilant sharing. That is, if anybody got a, the only thing they had to share was food, and if uh, and if anybody got a smaller portion of the kill, it was the hunter, because he could always go out and get more. And if 
The hunter tried to get more than his share, at least studies among uh, modern-day hunter-gatherer groups show these people would be uh, shamed or ostracized or even if necessary executed uh, because they threatened the stability of that society. So equality, well, first of all, health declined with the progress of agriculture and inequality increased. How did inequality increase? Well, somebody could say, I'm your lord or master. I want you to build me a castle surrounded by a moat to store the food you produce for me and go to war to protect my, to protect my resources. And then there we have inequality writ large. And all the, the data are uniform that health declined. It was at a very low level. If you measure, again, uh, skeletal height or stature. You know, I remember visiting the Tower of London to see statue, to see the armor of Henry VIII and and other major figures during that period. Those dudes had small statues. <laughs> they weren't very tall. You visit old English cathedrals where they have old grave boxes. You know, I did this with Richard uh, Wilkinson. Actually, we couldn't fit into the uh, into the grave boxes; they were too short. So, the people that we compare ourselves to show our progress a couple of hundred years ago were some of the shortest people who ever lived. Now, since then, we've grown taller, and at the end of the nineteenth century, Americans were some of the tallest in the world we could claim pretty good health status. Now, <laughs> taking uh, skeletal, taking height as a measure, all the Western European countries are taller than we are. Uh, you see this with army recruits. That's one place where you can measure uh, people's height. You know, when you joined the Revolutionary Army, they, <laughs> they documented how tall you were and you wanted tall recruits. These days, uh, you know, it's a poverty draft or and we don't have uh, we don't have those measurements. But so something happened in the last couple of hundred years and health started improving. And I think that was because the standard of living improved. Uh, you know, we had uh, sewage was trucked away, uh, you know, the water supply was separated from the sewage. We had clean water, uh, clean food, uh, better housing conditions. And uh, public health people say that was what produced the greatest health improvements up to somewhere in the middle of the, of the last century. And since then, um, you know, the studies are that more equal societies have faster health improvements. And as we become more unequal, and especially with the pandemic profiteering, our health has actually declined. It's been declining in some measure since 2015. And from 2019 to 2021, there were major health declines in the United States that were not present in the other rich countries. Our ship is sinking, you know, and and I, I make the Titanic uh, uh, analogy. 
if you had a first class ticket on the Titanic, 60% survived, second class 44%, third class or crew a quarter. So, you know, that's the class differences in survival, which are still there today in our, uh, in our ship. And uh, the only thing that's happened is that COVID has made it much worse because of the vast increases in inequality. So let's jump to that. So, because I'm trying, even going back to the tobacco thing, right? The, the, a challenge of pointing at stress and inequality as drivers of health disparities and of bad health and of low, uh, of low life expectancy, et cetera, is challenging. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to see, right? And it's uncomfortable to talk. It's, and, and it runs up against truths and mythologies around personal responsibility. Right. If you're unhealthy, it's because you're fat. If you're fat, it's because you eat poorly. If you eat poorly, it's because of your own choices and because you're not moving enough. Right. If we look at the aggregate, we know, well, yeah, but whether or not you have a sidewalk in your neighborhood is a really good indicator of whether or not you're going to have active transportation and be a little healthier. We know that your income level, your wealth level has significant impact on the kind of calorie you get to eat, right? And what what actually are the cheapest calorie in many of the countries you've mentioned are relatively healthy calories. The health, the cheapest calories in the United States are very unhealthy calories. I'm still sort of grappling with how we tell the story, but I want to jump to COVID. I want to get to, because maybe this helps us understand, at least illustrate how inequality yields. And I did not say is related, it overlaps with or coincides with, I said yields, or I said causation, because that's the case you're making. You're making not only a correlation case, but a causation case. So it might help us illustrate that or untangle it. As I've thought about it, because I, I saw really early, right, that it looked like, well, the people of color and poor people were the people who were getting impacted by COVID more. And then it was the people who were not masking and not getting vaccinations. And, and if you were both, you were really screwed. Uh, if, And as I understood it, I understood a few things. One, if you're a frontline worker, uh, you can't work from Zoom. You, know, you, you can't, if what you do is cut vegetables and fruits in a fruit and vegetable factory, you can't interact the way we're interacting now. Okay. If you, if you clean something that needs to be cleaned in person, well, maybe there are not as many people around, but you can't do it. You can't mail that in. So that part I understood. I also understand, well, it's also related because there's a lot of social determinants of health so that uh, underlying health challenges that COVID can sort of latch onto and put you at greater risk for. Well, those are also there as uh, as, as drivers of why uh, economic inequality was such a uh, such an indicator and maybe a causal factor, but it's certainly a, an indicator, unassailably an indicator of of disparate uh, COVID impacts. Was there anything that surprised you when you started looking at? Uh, when you started looking at, at, at COVID and relating it to inequality, was anything that, what were the things that confirmed your priors most, might be your favorite examples, was there anything that surprised you? Uh, where to start? Um, first of all, you talked about correlation and causation. Uh, how do we decide that something causes something else? I think that's an important thing that uh, mo even in public health departments or public health scholars are loath to say 
this causes that. They always hedge, or they tend to hedge because they don't want to be proven wrong. So let's go back to the 1964 Surgeon General's report titled Smoking and Health. So back then, you know, a large proportion of the population smoked. Uh, we doctors recommended certain brands as being milder on your throat. And, uh, and suddenly this report, but we knew from studies starting in the 20s that smoking was bad for you. And of course, uh, the tobacco companies knew this, but they, uh, <laughs> they just as uh, uh, the global warming corporations uh, suppressed that. Uh, Not only suppressed, but also did ads saying your doctor recommends smoking, also yeah. doing ads saying your T-zone will get cleaned out right. by, by <laughs> cigarettes, right? They did more than just try to change the subject. They did more than just try to get you to ask a different question. They asked the, answered the question falsely, but please continue. And yes, I'm energized, Rabbit. So what did the Surgeon General's 1964 report, Smoking and Health, it tried to present smoking as causing bad health. And it was the springboard for everything that followed. So how did they show causation? Chapter uh, three uh, lays out the grounds. You have to have many that was impressive, by the way. Anybody can quote chapters, but go ahead. I know it's a parlor trick. I know it. I know you're. I know you work at a carnival. Keep going. <laughs> yeah, don't believe a word I say. It's all made up. Ninety-four percent of all statistics are made up on the spot. <laughs> I thought it was seventy-two. <laughs> so uh, they lay out the criteria. Many studies by many different investigators on different data sets over different times showing the relationship. Smoking causes worse health. The chicken or egg hypothesis. Did you get sick and then start smoking? Or did you start smoking and then get sick? That's pretty clear. Were there better explanations? Something else that causes poor health rather than smoking. And finally, was there biologic plausibility? Were there biological mechanisms to explain that there's something about smoking cigarettes that changes your biology and makes you sick. And, and so if we ask that question for the inequality health relationship, all those criteria are met. And so, you know, chapter seven in the book is all about stress biology and showing that uh, people lower down the economic spectrum have different biological constitutions that make them sick. So it's satisfied. And, you know, and, and, and of course, Wilkinson and Pickett did a very nice uh, research paper laying out all of these ideas. And as Wilkinson sort of implied in his TEDx talk, uh, it, it's sort of now known that inequality is bad for your health by at least some segment of the population. But to link that to, so let's devolve now to, to, to COVID. Studies, so how did I, whenever I confront some new situation, I try to see what are the inequality precedents for this. So studies emerged uh, in, uh, at, in, at the end of the first year of the pandemic showing that mortality rates from COVID were 
among U.S. states were highest in the most unequal states. Studies then emerged among countries, looking at 84 countries, showing that more unequal countries had higher COVID death rates, and they uh, and their mechanism was because more inequality leads to less trust in and doing the sort of dictates that should help COVID um, COVID outcomes. Something more recent is that uh, if you're that the first thousand days as you go from the erection to the resurrection, the first thousand days after conception are when roughly half of your health as an adult is programmed. So early life really lasts a lifetime. And studies on that, well, you know, the, the ancient Greeks knew that. But in the modern era, uh, so, so, I, so I believe you, I, think, I believe you just said you said from the moment of conception to about two years old. Yes. That's about a thousand days. Okay. Thousand days. So before somebody's book, making choices about what they eat, before somebody's making choices about where they live, or if they ride a bike versus ride a car, but well before they're making choices of whether to smoke or doing that, that that you're saying half of their the die is cast. The die is cast. Yeah. And so again, uh, you know what are what is the science behind that? So I only came across these ideas in uh, around 1999 or or, or so. And again, I, you know, am I going to believe this? So I started attending conferences, international conferences. Uh, the uh, cover term was developmental origins of health and disease. Developmental sort of is a, another word for early life development and how that produces health and disease in later life. So I, I attended the research presentations. I got to know the, uh, the people that were doing these studies. And, uh, and I reviewed the literature and I said, boy, this is kind of incontrovertible. This is another one of these hard factual things that science bears out. Trying to get people to believe that is, well, as you said, you know, and no, what really matters is the, is whether you eat healthy choice foods or not. You know, we've been programmed to believe it is individual agency in adulthood that matters most for health. Why is that? Well, there's a, a huge market share in selling products to people uh, with uh, the right labels. And, um, and we have testimonials. I mean, in the evening, I like to watch uh, YouTube videos about a variety of things. And I, I don't pay extra so they don't come with ads. And the ads are often for really silly things that aren't going to make you healthy. Pause there. This is this is another thing. So if you go to a convenience store or if you go to a movie, everything you see, like everything you see is poison. And by the way, it's stuff I like to eat, right? I am not like I don't I don't I don't heed dietary wisdom near enough. In fact, I violate it regularly, right? And and when I when I am trying to be healthy and I go to a movie and I look there and like, wait a minute. There's nothing here I'm supposed to eat. I go to a convenience store, nothing there I'm supposed to eat. Now imagine you live in a food desert where what you have nearby is a fast food restaurant, a convenience store. Yeah, you sort of have choices, but you're 
choice is to walk three and a half miles to try to find something that isn't poison. And by the way, do that when you didn't learn that from somebody earlier, when it wasn't reinforced by your friends or teachers, and you don't have that experience yourself. All right, keep going. <laughs> okay. Uh, two directions to go there. Um, you mentioned movies. You know, they cast product placements in movies before they cast the actors. The, the products you see in movies are there for a reason. And, uh, and that's an important insight. Um, anyway. Well, yeah, because, because the product placement is a key piece of the capital stack to make the movie, right? You're saying, well, this is what it's right. going to take. We're going to and we're going to get, we're going to get this much from our early producers. We're going to get this much from alone. We're going to get this, and we're going to get this much because we put Pepsi Cola, you know, drunk by some attractive person that we have yet to cast because we haven't yet got our budget approved to cast that person. <laughs> you, you really hit it on the coffin nail. Um, so how important is diet? And, you know, I, I mean, I was a, a vegetarian vegan for a number of years. I mean, I, I've gone through all those experiences. And just like I discovered that smoking was not the hazard that I used to think it was, uh, the healthiest prefecture in Japan. So let's dissect Japan. And until very recently, it was Okinawa at the uh, southwestern terminus of the Japanese archipelago. And so Okinawans had among the best health status. And I had read that the Okinawan diet was mostly pork fat and noodles. So I went to Okinawa, <laughs> you know, you I, I don't want to take somebody else's word for it. I had to uh, see for myself. And I went to the markets, huge slabs of pork fat for sale. And uh, and I went to people's homes and ate their diet. It was pork fat and noodles. And what was their secret? Well, there's a Japanese saying, hari hachibu, stop eating when you're 80% full matters less what you eat that you not eat too much of it yes i think our I, another dictum I, I like i learned in medical school would you say the word again i want to uh, the phrase again hari hachibu hari hachibu yeah thank you stop eating when you're what eating. is it what is stop eating when you're 120 percent full because that tends <laughs> to be my well that leads to people being bigger and bigger yeah but keep going let's go back to early life yeah. If you are, so first thousand days, first nine months in the womb, what's a measure of how well you developed in your womb, in your mother's womb? It's your birth weight. If you are born of low birth weight, that is less than 2,500 grams, 5.5 pounds, your development has been compromised. And you are then subject to have more diabetes, more lung disease, kidney disease, uh, hormonal cancers. Th those are the studies that emerged from the conferences. Well, they emerged before those conferences. They were validated in the conferences I attended. So uh, knowing your birth weight is a, is a marker of how well you developed in your mother's womb. And if you had low birth weight and then had rapid catch-up growth, because that's what we used to tell people, you know, if you were born small, uh, really uh, put on the calories in the first year or two. 
when you do that, you then become quite obese as an adult. And, and so that's because you are, whether it's a food desert or a calorie desert, you know, you sort of want to regain what you didn't do in the womb. Now, among the factors that are important is brain development. So we have studies now showing that your birth weight correlates with measures of intellectual capacity. And so people with low birth weight, which are predominantly poorer people, uh, they have compromised ability to benefit from education. Remember in the United States, we feel that getting a college degree is the ticket to everything good. And so stay in school and get a college degree. Well, that doesn't work for, for example, uh, African-American women. Even African-American women who have a college degree have more low birth weight babies than any other racialized group of any educational status in the United States. There's something about being African-American in the United States that forever compromises what you can achieve. And so that, that gets into uh, the issues of racism, which we can explore, um, but it also highlights the importance of early life. And how do we know this writ large? Well, in Florida, there was a study that enrolled every child well, born from 1992 to 2000 and recorded their birth weights and how they did on standardized tests in grades three to eight. Forget whether standardized tests are a good measure of cognitive development, but they're probably closer to the mark than just guessing. Higher your birth weight, the higher your scores on the standardized tests. And we could break that data down by mother's education, by racialized identity, by poverty. You know, the worst is to be uh, African-American and uh, and poor, and that forever limits what you can accomplish. And being low birth weight, that limits what forever what you can accomplish. So how are these examples, I do want to use, well, to use your term devolve, I do want to devolve more into COVID. A lot of these principles are generalizable. A lot of these are, you know, about social determinants of health, about the sort of the, the causal impact of income equality on health. Tell the story more about how that was so very pointed, so very obvious, so very illustrated during COVID. Okay, so I talked about uh, low birth weight uh, being bad for you. So there's a study. Um, so we have, in the United States, we have limited data availability to allow us to make these comparisons. But in, uh, in, Spain, in Spain, they did a study in which they had uh, adults who had severe COVID and were hospitalized or died or, you know, had bad outcomes. And they were able to link those adults to their birth weights. And if they had low birth weights, their responses, adults to COVID, were much worse than those that had high birth weights, normal birth weights. 
So that's one very good study of early life compromising adult health. Uh, I've already mentioned the links between inequality and COVID outcomes. Uh, there are also studies on abuse of in, during childhood. That's a whole other realm. Um, studies were first done in San Diego at Kaiser Permanente there in the 1970s by Vincent Felitti. And what he did was um, take obese women and do a supervised fast with them to get them to lose 100 pounds in a year or two. And, and quite a few were successful. And then he tracked these women and he found that a large proportion of them put the weight back on as fast as they could. And so he was confused. And so he then um, began to question these women, you know, why did you put the weight back on? And, they, and, and a typical response was something like, well, when I lost that weight, I suddenly became sexually attractive to men. And weight was my body armor to uh, be able to not uh, have to deal with uh, sexual advances as men, with men because I was abused as a child. I was sexually abused by my father or mm. whom, or neighbor or whatever. So Felitti then teamed up with uh, uh, Anda and they did a study in which they took all the patients enrolled in Kaiser and did interview and interviewed them for their early life adverse childhood experiences and followed them for um, 20, 30 years. Results were published in only in 2008. It's hard for him to get them published, but they showed the more abuse you had as a child, the more your health was compromised, the more likely you were to shoot up, to have uh, many sexual partners, to uh, die young, and so on. So what Felitti, so they coined the term ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And um, the more ACEs you have, the more compromised your adult health is going to be. So that's led to a, well, uh, today, instead of this interview, there's a, there was a conference on trying to deal with ACEs. ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, have more or less come into specialty groups wanting to do something about them. We know that ACEs are common. They're common throughout the socioeconomic ladder, but they're more common among those who are poorer and those of, uh, of racialized groups. But so far, there's no pill or surgical procedure to excise the effect of early abuse. So what do we know can help? Well, um, just being able to talk about your early life experiences, Felitti uh, says, is, is, an, is a first step at therapy, acknowledging these, having uh, counselors or others be able to say, yeah, that really matters. Of course, um, mental health, and, and of course, a lot of mental health issues among those abused as children. And those who work as therapists know that if they uh, probe uh, uh, 
an adult's early life and find various early life conditions, abuse or others, they can then use those to help uh, the patient sort of deal with the issues that are going on. It's just another example of how early life lasts a life. Matters. I, I, I go to sort of use your move. I can go a lot of different directions with that. I'll say a couple of things. One, so I, I, you know, I, I had, I had childhood abuse and the, uh, um, and, and yeah, there's no pill uh, and talking about it helps the, uh, uh, it, it also reminds me of when I, I, I completed law school and I was doing a pro bono project on a sentencing matter, right? Somebody had already been convicted or maybe they'd already, I forget, maybe they'd already signed a plea agreement and they were subject and it was a federal case and they were subject to the federal sentencing guidelines. And the federal sentencing guidelines were put in place because the because of the critique there was too much disparity between uh, somebody who had committed some act and somebody else who committed what might seem like a similar act and somebody get 30 years and somebody else get three. They say, oh, that doesn't seem right. So we're going to create a cookbook and do it according to the cookbook. And there were uh, first elements that got you up and then elements that moved you down, got you a, a lighter sentence. And there was a specific inclusion, excuse me, a specific exclusion about from the items that could get you down, the things that could give you a shorter sentence. And that was adverse childhood experience. Really? Adverse childhood experience could not get you lower down. And what was clear to me as a 27-year-old guy writing a memo on behalf of you know somebody who was negotiating, navigating their sentencing was, uh, oh yeah, because it impacts probably every single one of them. Like if if that were, we should just lower the sentence by a year for everybody because probably, you know, I don't know, I would hesitate to say a percentage, but I know it'd be closer to a hundred than it would be to 50. So we can track child abuse deaths. Okay. Uh, there's a, a research group, uh, arm of UNICEF, Innocenti, based in Milan, Italy. And it issues an, a variety of league tables of various factors affecting children in rich countries. I first heard about this uh, when Noam Chomsky mentioned uh, child uh, poverty in rich countries a study. So that was, a, oh, again, in the 1990s when I learned a lot. Anyway, so there's there are about oh, 20 Innocenti reports of childhood circumstances in rich countries. And there's one looking at child abuse deaths in rich countries. And which country do you think has the most child abuse deaths? Oh, dear. Actually, to be honest, Mexico has a, a, a greater number of child abuse deaths, but not much. So I, you know, I can show you graphs of all of these things. I can point you to the resources. Similarly, when it comes to poverty, we have, again, the most poverty, child poverty we're talking about, of all rich countries. They go on to look at other measures of well-being, educational outcomes, um, but that child abuse deaths is very sobering. Studies show as well that uh, child abuse is linked to income inequality. So if the gap in income is greater, um, you get frustrated. And yeah. who are you going to take your frustrations out? You know, suppose you're at at, at, at paid work and the job and the, and the boss is giving you a pink slip. 
what are you going to do? Well, you're going to go home and take it out on your partner. What's she or he going to do? Take it out on the kid. What's the kid going to do? Well, there aren't many recourses. You can kick the dog maybe. So it's a cascade of put down relationships. And the bigger the gap, the more violent the cascade. And a modern day example uh, to bring it home are the mass shootings we have in the United States. They're no longer big news items. They're there every day. And why do we have so many mass shootings? Well, again, there are studies linking mass shooting defined as four or more uh, victims per event. Let's let's try and and, uh, make it uh, standardized. Studies have appeared in the last five, six years showing that mass shootings are linked to high income inequality in the at the county level and the presence of high incomes. You need both high inequality and rich people. And then what does a low status person do? Uh, well, you got to take it out on somebody else. So you take your AR-15 and and uh, and go out there and 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 kill. If you have that data, I'd love it. I, I, I wouldn't love it. I would oh, appreciate sure. it. No, it's, uh, I think I, uh, I think I linked to it in the book, Quan uh, uh, and Cabrera paper. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, I'll find it. Send it to me or I'll find it. And, I'll send them to you. I appreciate that because every time there's a mass shooting story, and I try to bring things back, and either when I'm talking here, sometimes when I'm guest hosting a radio program, is that each, each mass shooting is a, inequality story yep. and it's pitched as a gun story and it, and it is a gun story. Guns are a real thing. It's also an inequality story. We never cover the inequality part. And it's part of this thing, cause you can't smell it. It's not like smoking, right? You can't see it. You can't smell it. It's a little bit, it's a little bit harder. There's no and, smoking gun. I mean, there is a smoking gun, but <laughs> yeah, it's inequality that pulled the trigger. So how moving to solution promises too much moving to, the future, moving to what we do about it. Uh, how do we make even just public health more sexy, more of a priority? How do we make uh, stress an identifiable villain or problem to be solved? How do we create the rhetorical or marketing or political preconditions so that if, I don't know, a youngish president, presidential candidate, Barack Obama is coming out and making a promise that he wants to improve people's lives, he's not just talking about a Healthcare plan, which my old my old friend John Kitzhaber would call it a sick care plan, but instead talking about a health plan, which would mean what do we do about public health, which doesn't have as big a budgets as pharmaceutical companies and have as big a budgets as hospitals, doesn't have as big as budgets as doctors, but has a bigger impact on what most people think of as quality of life and health and life expectancy and heart health, etc. Uh, any moves you've seen other countries do, or even sometimes this country do, to help uh, us do a better job of at least identifying public health or the predetermines of public health or stress itself as something that seems real and actionable and a priority. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Fritz Kitzhaber because that's the first person I heard uh, utter the phrase, do you want health or health care? So, I, you know, I, I always think of major uh speaking points or uh, one-liners so um what 
what to do. I mean, there's a uh, public health has a has a bad rap in this country, and it's been tremendously defunded. And uh, the COVID experience, you know, if somebody had said in 2019, the next couple of years are gonna you're gonna be facing uh, a contagion that you've never heard of before, and it's gonna kill a million one hundred thousand people in this country and totally change your life you would have discounted that person. Um, and so the COVID situation, I think we're at the end of the beginning. That is, it's going to be around for a long time. What are we going to do about it is, uh, well, I think we have to regain the trust of the American people in for one another and for the government. And that's going to come from more upstream practices to decrease inequality. Uh, we have to, one way of doing that is to, is a phrase that uh, I heard from uh, the CEO of Intel some years back, uh, you get what you measure. What do we measure every minute of every business day in this country? The stock market indices, the NASDAQ, the Dow Jones. That must be the most important measure in this country since we report it every minute of every business day. We report economic growth every, uh, every month. Uh, and as you pointed out earlier, uh, it's not making us healthier. What else might we report? Well, um, Jim Hightower used the phrase, the Doug Jones index. How's Doug and his family doing? <laughs> and, you know, how long, how, how, what's his life like? Is he, uh, is he sick now? Is he gonna uh, not live very long? Is he gonna commit suicide or deaths of despair? This is a, an idea that surfaced in the last oh, five, six years. Annie Case and Ang Angus Deaton were looking at mortality measures uh, related to ages among racialized groups in the United States and comparing them to uh, people in other rich countries. And what they found was in the 45 to 55 age range, mortality rates for American whites were not declining as they were for other racialized groups in the country over the last 20 years. They were flat. In other words, mortality rates among um, middle-aged American white people didn't see the health improvements than others did. They then tracked, what were these people dying from? There were a preponderance of deaths from alcohol abuse, suicides, and other substance use. You know, about 100,000 people in a year in this country, more now, die from opioid overdoses. Why do we, con we consume three quarters of the world's opioids. Why? Well, America's a highly stressed society. We have a lot of pain. Pain comes in two flavors, physical pain. You know, I, I punch you. Social pain. I'm, I'm feeling the stress of society. 
In experimental situations, even acetaminophen Tylenol <laughs> will treat social pain. Um, but boy, opioids do it much better. So back to uh, deaths of despair. Middle-aged whites were not achieving the American dream. You know, you're supposed to be uh, owning your home and uh, and sending your kids to college and and awaiting your grandchildren, and it's not happening. So you despair and you try to cope, whether it's taking your life, drinking too much, uh, too many opioids. Uh, and these were measured by liver disease and and, and so on. And, there, and there's a book about uh, by by them on this title, Deaths of Despair. And, and they sort of believe that American capitalism can be saved to uh, to change this situation. So that's yes. a that's and you a write yeah you you write that we suffer great social pain in America. I was going to ask you about it, and you already answered it. I didn't mean to cut you off. I did because you teased it earlier. I did want to talk explicitly about race before we wrap. But let's we more explicitly discuss racism as a social health determinant. And you already sort of made that case. Uh, but you also break down that there are sort of different forms of racism. And you might explain some of those different forms and uh, those different forms and how that impacts health. So when I talk about, so first of all, um, what I've noticed to be a tremendous change among my students in the last, say, 10 years, is they now recognize racism as a, sort of a fundamental cause of problems in this country health problems. And that didn't used to be the case. And I think it's their realization that has gotten, got the rest of us to sort of unpack these ideas. So um, uh, there are something, a, a paper that in 1995 called, talked about the fundamental causes of health situations. And uh, inequality is one of those fundamental causes. Racism has also been described as a fundamental cause of health inequities. So I uh, then uh, talk about racism in my class by beginning, uh, by showing a one minute video that, uh, and, I, and these days I have to give the students a trigger warning. This is uncomfortable stuff. And the video is called Black Doll, White Doll. And if you yeah. search the web, you'll find that one minute video by MSNBC. And it goes back to studies done at Clark University uh, by black researchers in the 1930s. Yeah, and it was used to inform uh, Brown versus Board of Education yes, litigation strategy. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So there are even movies of the original uh, studies in, from Clark University in the 1930s. Anyway, in this one minute video, uh, children presented, black children presented with uh, uh, black and white dolls choose the white doll as the pretty doll. Why not the black doll? That doll is bad. That, you know, that's the bad doll. That's really tough. So that represents internalized racism. Even if you're, you know, just growing up in this country as an African-American, you've already internalized what that one minute video represented. 
then there's uh, personalized racism. Uh, you know, you see uh, an African-American going down the street, and so you cross to the other side of the street. I mean, you are reacting in a way that uh, voices your prejudice. Then institutionalized racism. Um, you know, we, we don't have, uh, we don't hire a lot of African-American researchers in our public health school. We have a, <laughs> a prejudice against that. I mean, we don't voice it. We want to. I mean, everybody's, we now have uh, the Anti-Racism Center for Health, ARCH Center, uh, you know, trying to get around these ideas, but uh, it's institutionalized. You know, if you want to get to Harvard, uh, <laughs> you have a rich white daddy who uh, sends money there and you'll get in for sure. It's uh, it's a rigged system. Let's jump over to to politics. If we're gonna if we're gonna do things at a policy level, right? To impact, um, I mean, something that happened after you, you mentioned the Business Week line, something that happened after 1976. And since then, we've seen a uh, a reduction in marginal tax rates on upper income Americans, right? We've seen a reduction in enforcement of antitrust uh, laws. We've seen a reduction in estate tax. We've seen sort of a a, 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 I'll use the word cascades or a series of explicit policy choices to uh, move more wealth to the upper, to the upper levels uh, that are more likely to benefit people like me than, you know, lots, you know, than a lot of other people in the world. Uh, what impact beyond, beyond federal policies, what impact do liberal or conservative state policies have not just on wealth and quality themselves, but maybe, but on lifespan? So an important study was done. Um, actually, one of the researchers is here at the University of Washington, um, but the, it, it sort of came out of Syracuse University. They tracked uh, the 50 state life expectancies from 1958 to 2017. And they found, uh, and they um, tracked states that had more liberal policies in terms of uh, human rights, abortion, incarceration, uh, whole education, and conservative policies in those realms. And what happened was from about 1958 to oh, 19, the mid-1980s, Health was improving, improving faster in the liberal states compared to the conservative. And then in the 1990s, it kind of flatlined. Life expectancy flatlined in the conservative states, and it kept on increasing in the, uh, in the more liberal states. And, and so, you know, the, and the gap back so uh, you know the gap among the states in 1958 was pretty small remember inequality was much less then so as inequality has grown as states have through federalism adopted various policies that benefit certain segments of their society this is reflected in how long people live in those states Another study, so that was life expectancy. Another similar study was done with adult mortality, showing also the same the same factor. So, so you know, political policies are really the medicine we need if we want to live long, healthy lives. And what kind of policies should they be? Well, 
um, <laughs> liberal policies. That is, uh, we need policies that tax the those who have too much and and use it for social spending for those who have too little. If we think about social spending, so there's a very important uh, relationship between medical care spending and social spending. United States, we spend about two and a half times what we spend on social spending on medical care. There's not much bang for that buck. Other countries, it's the reverse. They front load social spending. And what kind of social spending are we talking about? Well, um, let's take a working woman who's pregnant and has her baby. How much paid time off does she get living in the United States after she has her baby? Zero, right? We're one of two countries in the world that do not give, that don't have a national policy of paid parental leave. The other country besides the United States is Papua New Guinea, half of a big island north of Australia. Other country, well, okay, I don't know what it's like in Oregon, but Washington passed a, a paid uh, uh, maternity leave policy uh, that got funded through a payroll tax in 2019 and took effect in 2020. Uh, it only gives you 12 weeks and uh, and the pay is a proportion of your salary. So yeah, about, it's similar it's, to similar to Oregon. I think my, it's almost identical to Oregon. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's another. So I, I I could devolve to uh, other sort of, but policy. So take a healthy country like Sweden, one of the healthiest in the world. The Swedish government spends more of the government money in the first year of a child's life than in any subsequent year. We don't spend money on the first year of life. We spend it on remedial action for teenagers. If we're going to spend any government money, Swedish tax rates are very high. I'd like to show a graph from uh, Piketty's Capital and Ideology of the percentage of the national income that accrues to the government. Tracked from 1870 to about 2015. This is one of the most insightful graphs I've I've come across. Back in the in the eighteen hundreds, governments commanded about seven, eight, nine percent of the economy. What did they use that for? Well, build a castle for the king, have a standing army to protect him, and uh, and make sure that private property was protected. Somewhere in the 19, early nineteen hundreds countries began to accrue more of the national income to the government. And in Piketty's graph, uh, Sweden maxes out around 55% of the country's income goes to the government. For the United States, it's about 30% after the 1950s. So what does Sweden, so Sweden has high tax rates, that's how the government gets the money. And what do they spend it on? Well, the people universal health care, uh, free uh, child care, early life education, um, patern uh, parental leave, and so on. What do we spend our 30% on? Well, a big chunk goes to the military, 
and the rest goes to Social Security for old people like me. That's not going to give us much bang for health. So we need to change our priorities on what we do. You know, governments should raise taxes rather than increase the national debt. The, the poor people, if you take if you take the richest 400 people in the country, uh, Emmanuel Says and Gabriel Zuckman did this study, they pay a lower percentage of federal, state and local taxes than the poorest uh, 50%. That's not fair. Warren Buffett sometimes used to say the same thing. But we need a fair system of taxation. We shouldn't increase the national debt to pay for things that uh, uh, can happen if, if the rich are made to share their wealth. And, but we, none, none of us are gonna do this until we recognize that we're dead first. That is, we die younger than people in all these other countries. And that includes the rich. You know, if we look at uh, death rates among the richest segment, I mean, they don't stratify on the death certificate. I don't write when I used to fill one out working in the emergency department. I didn't write down the wealth of that person because I didn't know it. I did write down their age if I knew it and uh, and some racialized category. So it would be nice if we collected the wealth information on our vital statistics. We don't even collect income information. The only information that might be there is education. So do we know, because the title, importantly, I think importantly, of the book is Inequality Kills Us All. It doesn't say inequality kills poor people. It says inequality kills us all. You make the case, you use the example in our conversation, and thank you for being so generous with your time today, uh, that if you enter at the front of the airplane and go through first class, that that impacts the stress of the people in first class, not just the people who have to walk past first class. Right. Any other examples, any other data, you just sort of said, well, we don't have great wealth data and a lot of this stuff that makes the case that it's not just the, uh, it's not just poor people that are impacted by inequality, but it's all of us. So I may have mentioned this, I can't remember. The oldest old person is never in this country. Yeah. So, you know, if, if the rich, you know, if Elon Musk was going to live to be 127, uh, I mean, he won't. <laughs> uh, you know, then inequality probably didn't, uh, didn't affect him. But take, uh, take notables who didn't live to be very old. They didn't even make age 60. Elvis certainly had a lot of uh, wealth and Graceland. Steve Jobs, you think, gosh, you know, such an innovator. He could have made it. Uh, Janis Joplin. I mean, take notables who didn't get to be very old. They're, very, they're a dime a dozen. Um, so that's the hardest thing. The rich would be healthier being less rich in a more equal society. The data on that are very clear. Well, I want to say thank you so much for joining us as Dr. Bezruchka of the University of Washington. Uh, the book again is Inequality Kills Us All. Any other plug you want to make? Do you have a favorite way for people to access the book or anything else you want to suggest people look at? 
Well, I have a website, stephenbizruchka.com, and I put uh, information about the book there. And when media events like this happen, I list them uh, on the book's title page, scrolling down on the right. Um, I would urge you to uh, consider setting up um, discussions about the book's contents. Uh, so get a book and and have a book club discussion of it. Invite me to it if you want. I'm happy to. Uh, my email is very easy, sabez at uw.edu, or you can also link to me uh, from the uh, book's website. I'd be happy to work to work with you to make America healthy again. Doctor, thank you so much for your time and all your work. This was fantastic. My pleasure. Thank you, Robert Jefferson. Be well. Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seeliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, democracy.